I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. Welcome back for season two of More Than Profit. Uh, I'm excited this season to bring you more interviews of people that are living and working with purpose, how they do it and why, how they leverage their skills, their education, their capital to affect positively change in communities that they operate. My guest today is Maurice Jones, the president and CEO of the Local Initiative Support Corporation, otherwise known as LISC. And LISC is one of the largest organizations in the country that supports projects to revitalize communities and catalyze economic opportunities for its residents. Maurice and I got into a lot of discussions around CDFIs, banking reimagined and the role of financial intermediaries to support communities and and really what's not working. Uh, 25 years in, last year, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the CDFI fund origination under President Bill Clinton. And there's a lot that's left to be desired, a lot of opportunity before us as a nation to embrace the role of financial services to support our black and brown neighbors. And uh, there is a there's an important work that needs to be done. And that work for Maurice is really informed by his past. Uh, he has both deep experience in the public and private sector, but Maurice says his specialty is human impact. He said, I would place my work in that category. He's always had jobs where the goal was to have impact on people's lives. As you listen today, you're going to learn that that is fundamentally true about Maurice. His role uh, today is completely informed by the impact of family, teachers, community, and he looks to, to do that through his work at LISC. And so it was, it was interesting to, to open up our discussion today, asking him what's not on his resume, given his impressive background, what's not in his resume that he'd like to share? The thing that people need to understand is I'm a country boy. I was born and raised in a little small town in rural Virginia, a little town called Lunenburg County, uh, population 1,200, uh, my town, Cambridge, uh, population 1,200, my my daughter teases me all the time that that her school is larger than my hometown of Kenbridge, Virginia, <laughs> um, and reared by grandparents. That's uh, another really um, sort of formative piece for me. And we were farmers. We uh, we had uh, pigs and we had uh, cattle and uh, we had chickens and we had a garden and most especially we had tobacco. So I was a tobacco farmer, as we used to say, tobacco farmer. Um, and that was what I did for the first 25 years of my life, right? I farmed tobacco. As, as I tell people, it inspired me to go to college. Yeah, it's uh, hard work. Because that's hard work. And yeah. I can remember growing up in, uh, in this little small, modest town and thinking, okay, when I, when I grow up, I just want an office job. I don't care what it is. Just get me out of this tobacco field. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and that's, you know, I ended up getting really, really lucky. Uh, the, the biggest gift in my life was I was raised by grandparents. Uh, I went to live with them when they were 50 years old and uh, I was three months old. And um, they were... Uh, my grandfather, born in 1914, had been educated in a barn for six years. And then because of his color, exclusively because of his color, 
didn't have an option to go to school. They weren't going to send school buses out to pick up little colored boys to take them to school. So he went out and went to work. My grandmother, who happened to live closer to town, was able to walk to the local colored high school and was able to eventually graduate and get her diploma. Uh, But they raised me, they raised their children. Um, You know, they were the ones who taught me about working hard, going to school and being nice and and having a relationship with God. I mean, they were the 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 game changers in my life. Um, It's pretty interesting. But I remember that experience. That experience is the core of everything I've done. Yeah. uh, Since then. And it's it's pretty powerful. You know, this is season two. Um, Every person on on season one that I've talked to is the, the, the impact of some parental unit um, that's been super profound uh, and the power of education um, that, that opens the doors of opportunity, but you didn't just go to school. (laughs) You had a full ride undergrad and also a a Rhodes scholar. I mean, you, you, you took that opportunity and really uh, made some, some powerful moves as a young person. Well, I was blessed, right? I had, so when I was in high school, eighth grade, I had a science teacher who just was determined that <clears throat> that she could see my future well before me. And so I was on the debate um, team. And one day after a debate competition, she came up to me and she had this gentleman with her. And she said, I want to introduce you to Senator so-and-so. Senator Edmonds was his name. And I said, hello to Senator Edmonds. And she said, you know, Senator Edmonds and I were just talking about your being a page in the General Assembly in the next session. I had no idea what a page was. I looked at her and him with this strange look on my face because the only pages I, I knew were in books. Yeah. And I said, I said, well, how do, how do you do that? Yeah. How do you <laughs> and, do that in the General she, Assembly? Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> and she realized really quickly that I didn't know. And so she explained. The next thing I knew, because of this eighth grade science teacher, the next General Assembly session, I was in Richmond, Virginia, working in the General Assembly. Wow completely opened my eyes to a whole new world. I came back motivated to study. I wanted to go to law school. That experience is what cultivated my aspiration to go to law school because I saw all of these lawyers in the General Assembly, I thought, being in a position to do good things. Now, don't ask me about that now. That's what I thought. (laughs) Yeah, the innocence of children, (laughs) right? (laughs) Those were were through the eyes of a 13 year old, right? Yeah. Um, but it inspired me to go to college. So I worked hard. And when I got to my senior year, that same eighth grade science teacher is the one who helped me to do my college applications, who basically was the one who thought that Hampton Sydney College was the place that I was to go, wow. who was also the one who called them up and said, you got to look at this guy. And wow. I ended up getting a scholarship. That's amazing. It was because of the faithfulness of that eighth grade science teacher. Once I got to, so I got a scholarship to go to Hampton Sydney. So it was an easy choice. That's amazing. Once I got to college, I had a college president who determined in my sophomore year that I was going to be a Rhodes Scholar. And so he made that part of his mission. And so he started putting notes in my mailbox in college about Oxford Mm. and about England. 
I thought the guy, I was like, what is he talking about? I'm going to law school. I don't know what this guy's talking about. But then he wrote me my senior year. He called me into his office and he said, you got to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. And I looked at him and I said, sir, I, I, I want to go to law school. And he looked at me. He said, law school will be here when you get back. <laughs> and that was it. I applied to be a Rhodes to, to for the Rhodes Scholarship because of him. Mm. He wrote me this great recommendation. Next thing I know, I'm chosen to be a Rhodes Scholar. This was not in my plan, right? Yeah. Uh, but again, I went to England. Three years changed my life. Made me much more a citizen of the world than I had been. I hadn't. Yeah. My grandparents died never having traveled on an airplane. Wow. And here I was in England for three um, years. This was this was because of people, right? This was people in my life, my grandparents, uh, the people in my church, my eighth grade science teacher, my college president. These folks changed my life. Yeah, no question about it. So, you know, I don't deserve any of it. I, I, it's <laughs> it's it's all because of them. And then when I got to England, I ended up. Uh, I wanted to go to Harvard Law School, mm. right? That's where I wanted to go. Applied, got into Harvard, visited, and, um, you know, could not see taking out those loans uh, that I needed to take out to uh, go to law school because then I would have been paying Harvard back loans instead of giving money to my grandparents. So I got a scholarship to go to the University of Virginia Law School. And that, you know, that allowed me to go to law school. Plus it allowed me to keep contributing financially to my family. That's great. Easy choice. Yeah. Easy choice. Yeah. Again, all of these things because of people. Yeah. People. So people did it for me. So you're a father. I mean, you, you're one of the things I've appreciated about you and the, and the times that we've gotten to know each other. I've, you're a family man. You know, you're, I mean, I think you make intentional decisions. We talked about the fact that you live in Norfolk and, You've lived in Virginia. I think some of those are because of family. Um, no question. And and so if I were to ask your children, you know, these these formative experiences of of your grandparents and these teachers, what what would they tell me? Because uh, because I, I, the reason I ask about what your children would say is because I have four daughters and I think I have my own yeah. core values, but it's the things that they pick up on um, that I think are really the values we instill. So what would be yeah. some of those values that? That, that they might ref, say ref, are reflective of, of who you are and, and those moments throughout throughout your life? Yeah, I think that my daughter, I have one 17-year-old daughter. Um, uh, I think that she, and she tells me this all the time, uh, she would say, one, that I work hard. Mm. Uh, and I uh, do, I try to outwork everybody, right? Uh, I'm not always successful, but that's what I try to do. Um, but she would also tell you that um, I am naively optimistic. Uh, and that also comes from my grandparents. You know, my grandparents lived through uh, world wars. They lived through the Great Depression. They lived at a time when lynching was legal. They lived at a time of black codes, uh, of separate but equal segregation but they still got up every day with joy mm. and they still live their lives because they believed that they may not reap the benefits of their struggle, but those of us that they were working for like me, uh, that we would. And so they, they, 
worked hard every day with with uh, with with joy. And so my daughter would tell you that I'm naively optimistic <laughs> that I'm always saying that it's going to get better. And she's right. I'm I'm, I'm guilty of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think um, uh, she would uh, also say that, yeah, I mean, when it comes to uh, the family, you know, I might be working a lot, but but we make choices for the family, for the loved ones. Um, and um, for the loved ones that uh, that uh, that may be treating us right and the loved ones who may not be, yeah. we still make choices for them. And all of that, frankly, I got from my grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a, a quote I found from you that, that I thought really captured this. And you said, in many ways, coming to Lisk brings me full circle. Uh, I vividly remember as a child watching my grandparents working themselves to the bone so I could have a better life. Now I feel blessed to be in the position of creating opportunities for a new generation. So I think yeah. what I've heard in, in those moments of your grandparents and those teachers is, is seizing those moments and opportunities, uh, putting people at the center of your actions, um, and and good things will good things will come of that. So that's, that's great. what was done for me. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. What was done for me, absolutely. So let's let's ratchet it forward a little bit. Um, so you were you were around at the beginning. So CDFIs, a lot of people, some people are familiar. So in the space that you and I kind of operate, more people are going to be familiar with CDFIs, mm -hmm. but. Some people still don't even know what they are, uh, community development financing institutions, but it really came out of some legislation uh, in the Clinton administration in 1994. And so you were you were there at the formation of it. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you helped yeah. kind of craft it. Yeah. I want to ask kind of two things. One, it, it, it kind of came out of a failed initiative that President Bush uh, couldn't get funded um, or lost funding. Um, Talk to me a little bit about what was what was wrong maybe with that initiative going into 1994 and Clinton's administration. And then I'm also really curious too, given your position, um, what what was up for discussion? Because you know how things go. Uh, and there's there's the, the thing that comes before uh, the initial like, hey, here's what we think it should look like. And then things get cut away. Um, I'd be really curious, what was what was in the original concept that maybe is on the chopping block floor that looking back, it's like, wow, that should have, that should have stayed in. That's, ah, that's an interesting <laughs> question. So I'm not as familiar with the, okay. uh, with the Bush plan, but what, it, but here's what I, I'll tell you that I know this really, um, um, came out. So president Clinton and first lady Clinton at the time was familiar with community development banks okay. because they had seen them operating in Arkansas uh, and they were also familiar with at that time Shore Bank. Mm -hmm. And so initially uh, the idea here was about investing in these banks that also had a mission of, uh, of doing well uh, and they were also familiar with Muhammad Yunus's micro enterprise lending outside of the country. And so it was these things coming wow. together. I mean, that's what this was at the end of the day all about for them. And, um, and then it grew out of that to a recognition of the fact that actually there was a industry in the country that was a development finance industry that was the analogy to Muhammad Yunus 
uh, mm. abroad that was uh, that included banks, that included loan funds, that included credit unions. Uh, and what that industry needed was support. That mm. industry needed a source of equity, a source of investment so it could do more, right? And so that's really um, how this um, came together. And the fact is that what really cemented this, because this was a, um, an, an initiative of the Clinton administration was his and the first lady's knowledge of the workings of these banks in particular in uh, so the southern parts of the U.S., uh, Southern Bank Corp. and, um, and uh, South Shore. Those were the things that they were really familiar with. Wow. So you didn't, have to, you didn't have to explain it to them. Mm. They knew it. They knew it firsthand. They, they knew what these organizations could do. Yeah. In terms of um, what was left on the chopping block, here's what I would tell you. It's not that something was left on the chopping block. It's that there was something that was in that initial legislation that has still to this day not actually uh, come to fruition. And that is the creation of a secondary market for these loans. That's right? what I was going to get into that. Yeah. So that, talk to me a little that's, about that. So that was part of the original legislation, hmm. the the, uh, the vision that you would have this fund, but that you would also have a vehicle through which um, you would get the creation of a secondary market for these loans uh, so that this thing could really scale. Can you, um, just for the sake of some of the people that aren't familiar with CDFIs to begin with, explain the secondary market. Like what, what would that have meant for this new so, effort? It, you know, it's the equivalent of what Fannie Mae does in the housing sector, right? It's a vehicle or vehicles or structure or structures that would literally bundle loans that CDFIs make, um, turn, them into, turn them into what is essentially securities so that they can be purchased. Mm. And through purchasing them, those CDFIs would get more liquidity so they could continue to do this work, right? So yeah, because the loans are they're less interest, they're longer terms. So they, they exactly. need that liquidity in order to, exactly. to move the dollars. Exactly. Exactly. So so while that concept was not left on the cutting floor, if you will, the concept itself has not, even to this day, has not actually become a reality. And that, in my mind, is one piece of why the, the, the system, the development finance system in the country has not grown to the scale that we need it to be at. What's it going to take? In order to do the work. So I, we need to uh, choose again to create a secondary market. Choose again to come up with a secondary market vehicle and or structures. Well, it um, seems like we, not, we have the capacity. Yeah, I mean, we have I the, we <laughs> you know, we've I seen we it. Do. We were just talking before, just in, literally in the last four months, 600 plus billion dollars moved quickly to support yeah. small businesses as it relates to COVID. Like we have the ability to do this. We do. We absolutely do. And so I think we just got to put some great minds around this. And, and, and it, it's sort of, it's just, it's been, 
in terms of priority, it's been relegated, if mm. you will. Um, and um, that would be what I would say is well worth us uh, revisiting. And now would be the perfect time to do so. So Look, the, the, yeah. the truth of the matter is, um, you know, what people, one of the big challenges is loans that CDFIs make are all non-conforming, so to speak, in, in, in finance language. And so there's no cookie cutter. I mean, that's the beauty of the CDFI field mm -hmm. is that we try to um, fill niches and be innovative. The other side of the coin though, is for the S&Ps of the world and the other folks who try to rate this stuff, they, you know, it, it, it's messy, right? Messy. It's, it's all non-conforming. Um, and so we definitely have to uh, figure out how to get some more conformance, if you will, within the system, but also uh, to find uh, entities that are comfortable dealing with and rating uh, uh, these loans. And I know it's doable, um, but we've got to we've got to make it a priority. Yeah. I think what's interesting, so I want to go, so it's interesting, the Clintons, their familiarity with the community banks in Arkansas, um, it, it kind of goes to the next question of just the emergence of CDFIs to begin with. So coming out of um, the CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act in the 1970s, right. it was right. really a, a federal response to bad banking practice, uh, issues of redlining and huge systemic problems that just completely um, kept large portions of our uh, communities out of the financial markets, particularly black, brown, and indigenous people. So what what should we be doing? So I, I get there, okay, so like things are broken, federal response, let's let's create this other market. But what what can we do to really push banks? Um, because I think what one of the things that I've been seeing is this, especially since 2008, because it's interesting, you fast forward what, what happened in 2008, there's this, this hyper consolidation of banks, this almost this massive globalization of banks where on some levels at the community level, it, 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 it depersonalizes um, these business interactions um, because really banking used to be community banking. It used to be yep. you, you went into a local lender, whether that was, you know, CDFI in the, in the early 1990s or 80s, even coming out of CRA or just your, your bank. And there was a, there was a relationship. There was an ability to, to nuance issues that might exist within a, within a financial statement or, or otherwise, because you, you knew those people. Um, what, what should we be doing, I mean, especially now uh, with what's going on in the world to, to really address some of the, the egregious issues that, that banking itself has leveled on, on these communities? Uh, how do we, how yeah. do we press into that? And, and, and what, what does the future look like with these kind of yeah. these two different markets? So let me come at it from two fronts. Sure. Uh, the the first thing we should be doing is redefining what we mean by the banking system. So um, most people, when they use the concept of the banking system, they're talking about JP Morgan Chase and Bank of America and Wells Fargo uh, and those enterprises, which is great. But what we need to also be talking about our CDFIs as part of the financial system that 
provides access to capital to these to 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 this country. So the first thing is CDFIs should not be an afterthought. CDFIs should be at the table mm. as we are contemplating what to do or how to use the banking system to reach um, enterprises and individuals, right? Because as long as CDFIs are sort of um, compartmentalized, we're then when, when, when people are designing the PPP system, they're not thinking about the use of CDFIs from day one, right? We get bought in after the fact, after people see the flaws or the imperfections of defining the system so narrowly. So the first thing that I would tell you that we have to do is the development finance infrastructure in the US needs to be embraced as part and parcel and in an essential part and parcel of the banking system, right? And therefore we need to make sure we're trying to use it and scale it to do the work in the places that the mainstream banks are not reaching. Right. That's the first thing I would take. The second thing I would tell you is, look, um, there's no question in my mind that the Community Reinvestment Act tool is a big piece of why banks work with us. There's also no question in my mind that that tool needs to be updated mm. um, and updated in a significant way to reflect, you know, technology and what it has done. Uh, con the consolidation of the industry and the 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 risk that you won't have any community banks left, um, but it also needs to you know it's it, to me the irony of this is you know uh, the Community Reinvestment Act obligations really came about because banks were redlining, and they were redlining based explicitly on color, mm. right? They were drawing lines around communities that black people lived in and saying these lines were off limits to lend in. The CRA legislation avoids the whole topic of race, mm. right? It focuses on low and moderate income communities. That's the proxy for race. We need to be explicit about the fact that we intentionally got here through the intentional use of race. How do you get out of a situation where you intentionally use race by not using race as well. Doesn't make any sense to me, right? Yeah. It's just nonsensical. Nonsensical. Right? And so we have to get comfortable with the fact that if we're really going to address racial wealth gaps, we got to be intentional about the use of race. In this country, it just dances and makes us all uncomfortable. Um, but you know this, uh, you can't drive down any streets in a city in America and not realize that those streets were intentionally constructed because of race. For right? sure. Highways driven through black communities because they were black. Yeah. I mean, um, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, as you know, and there's, Louisville. there's literally an access to the 64 highways that went in the 19. So 64 highway was put in 1960s, 1964, I think. And then there's this access road that literally goes on the highway. It's created an inner city highway, you know, to get on and get off, which is what 
a lot of the 1950, 1960s urban planning did was create these inner inner city, interstate highway systems for transit to the suburbs. And, uh, and so that, that's created a lot of, so really for someone in West Louisville, for example, that's a, an unbelievable physical barrier. There are six lanes of a road between a predominantly black community that's completely disinvested, that was redlined in entirety for decades, uh, and the rest of the city. Yeah. And it's just unconscionable that we're not speaking to that specifically in the ways in which we're trying to address the, the problems of our yeah. communities. So embrace the development finance structure as yeah. part of the overall finance structure and be intentional when oh, yeah. it comes to obligations you're putting on uh, banks and the mainstream system. Be intentional about saying, yes, these black and brown communities that you redlined, now we're telling you, you have to be aggressive about serving them. Yeah. Um, you have to do both uh, in order to, and you, you know, we got this new fintech industry, Yeah. this fintech industry, it, which is, you know, relatively unregulated. Uh, it's another tool that we got to leverage for these communities. We got to be all in if we're really going to make a change. here. Yeah, we, and this is a whole nother topic, but we do a lot of investments in blockchain, which, uh, as a part of, it's a subset of fintech, but the whole emergence of it is this notion of decentralized uh, autonomy, yeah. security to really improve access, decrease transaction costs. I mean, like yeah. that's the underlying yeah. values is yeah. to, to create me, more opportunity. Let me mention one, one last piece. Um, it's no secret that if you look at the leaders of our mainstream financial institutions, the executive levels, there are very few people looking like me. Um, and I don't care what you say, it makes a difference. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, and that was when, one thing I was going to... choices have to be made, if people like me are not at the table, you're, you're going to be missing a viewpoint that you need in order to serve folks like me. So the other thing that we have to be way more serious about and aggressive about and insistent upon is that we have got to diversify the leaders of our financial institutions. Mm, no doubt. Well, I think if we rethink or reimagine the banking system, which includes CDFIs, I think what you're going to see is a lot of, because what I see is, is you as a CEO of LISC, uh, an unbelievably sharp mind as it relates to, I mean, the genesis of CDFI fund. I mean, you you know these things. You worked at the Treasury under multiple administrations. And you at the table would be super helpful in how we think well, about the PPP or other type programs to, to really support yeah. black and brown communities. Yeah, probably not me, but there's some others <laughs> that I can think of. In the okay, but, but, fair but enough. But your, your, your overall concept yeah. is correct. <laughs> well, and I wanted to, so one thing I wanted to press on, I want to stay on this topic just a little bit. Um, your experience, obviously federal, um, but also I think state and local. Um, can you help me? Because one of the things I've been just fascinated by is, is obviously there's, the, there's PPP and, and what we've experienced recently at a federal level, but rather quiet in, in cities locally um, related to banking practice, leadership. What would you say to, like, to mayors or to local communities that, because as you know, you're at LISC, you operate in I think 40 plus states, you have offices in gosh, at least a dozen. Um, 
36 actually. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So, which is, which is amazing. Um, but a lot of communities specifically in mid America still lack that infrastructure, still lack that, uh, the understanding to leverage that appropriately. And then in communities where you don't have banking headquarters. So in Louisville specifically, we, we just don't, we've got small kind of regional community banks, you know, sub 10 billion assets under management, um, but we don't have the big dogs. And so when it comes to even CRA, we don't, we don't get that. So leveraging yeah. a LISC or an enterprise now or something like that would be great. But how in the, in this moment when where there really should be a response from local government and local banks to really uh, like really look at their history of redlining, their participation in these issues, how can they move towards without waiting on the federal government? What could local communities yeah. be doing? And, and they shouldn't wait on the federal yeah. government. And um, I will tell you, we work in many places that are not. Um, and what they can be doing. So, look, we believe that actually the most important assets for catalyzing opportunity mm-hmm. are actually the local ones. Um, that, and, and I certainly believe in my life that the most important uh, catalyst of opportunity for me were, you know, as I mentioned, a school teacher, grandparents, et cetera. Um, what local leaders need to do is to pull together the right coalition of individuals and enterprises uh, in order to go to work in those places in the community where the gaps are growing. And so uh, local mayors and city council folks and philanthropic leaders and bank leaders, whether they are a local community bank or branches of these large, they need to come together. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, not too far from you, decided that they had a huge issue as it uh, related to um, affordable housing. It, they actually made this a part of a bigger issue about catalyzing opportunity. Uh, a study was done that showed that of the top 50 metropolitan areas in the country, that Charlotte was 50 out of 50 in terms of being born poor and having the opportunity to escape it by the time by, within your lifetime. So they decided that they were going to do something about it. And they decided that they were going to do it with local assets. Mm. They pulled together an opportunity commission that came up with a handful plus of, of uh, recommendations. And one of them was they needed more uh, housing that was affordable to people across the income spectrum with a particular focus on people who were earning about 30% of the area median income. So what did they do? They reached out to us and said, hey, we want to put together a fund that would work alongside the the city's housing trust fund. We want to raise private sector dollars and we're going to match it with public sector dollars. So they put uh, $50 million into their housing trust fund through the city council, actually putting a bond referendum on the, on the bill, on the ballot. By the way, the citizens voted for it by 66%. And then they also... Um, pulled together with the uh, local philanthropic group and some banks. They pulled together $50 million from the private sector to create a fund there. And now those two funds are working hand in hand to support the creation and the preservation of affordable housing 
with a particular focus on people who are at 30% of area median income. All done locally, all done with the mayor hmm. and the philanthropic uh, group, the um, uh, the, the uh, foundation for the Carolinas and the city manager and the banks. Uh, and we've got churches, we've got residents. This is what local folks can do. Yeah. Uh, it, re- it requires a coalition of leaders, but it can be done and it is being done around the country right now. That's great. No, and I appreciate your comment. Like not, let's not wait on the federal government. I think there's no. definitely things we need to do, but D- focus on definitely don't wait for yeah. it. <laughs> don't wait. Definitely don't wait for it. So. And that's a longer story. We can talk about it at a different time, yeah. but definitely do not wait. Yeah. Some people say, so, um, some people, so the future of CDFIs, um, some people would say that CDFIs shouldn't live indefinitely. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, given, given kind of the conversation of late of right. Okay. Let's, we need to redefine the banking system. Should CDFIs continue to exist, but more co-opted into the, the, the mainstream ways in which we deploy capital to support all people? Um, yeah. And, or, th- or should it, you know, what, what's the future look like? I think you're going to always need development finance enterprises. CDFIs may evolve, but you're going to always, people think you can create a system that's so perfect that you don't need anybody doing good. That's not true. I know no system that is so perfect that you don't need folks making sure that we're doing good. CDFIs are filling the flaws in the system Um, and the flaws in the system will continue to evolve. And so you're going to always need, I think, organizations that are working in those gaps. Um, So CDFIs roles may change over time, but the notion that we will create a perfect financial system that will broadly share prosperity without folks working to feel the flaws in the system. You know what? I pray for that day. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, <laughs> well, I I'm think, gonna try to build the CDFI industry. Well, and I think you bring up a, a really good point. I think we oftentimes forget that systems are still run by people. And, yeah. pe- and yeah. you can have by and large 95% of people that choose to make good decisions and do things right. But that 5%, you know, 1% it can do, can wreak havoc on, on, on whole households, communities. And so we need, uh, we need regulation. We need regulators. We need CDFIs that are going to help hold, hold the, that industry accountable. So. And, and systems mirror the blind spots of the people who create them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that simple. And sometimes you don't see the blind spots until the system has to deliver. Yeah, and I think, um, and the other part of it is CDFIs. I think because the S and P and these these uh, and and other like the the more mainstream, they're looking for these very simple products. So that one oh, of the yeah, issues they yeah. where's the innovation, right? And so it's I, a great, it's I, a great point. It it's really does point. force you to get creative. It's a great point. You know these systems are built for efficiency. These systems are built for conformity. These systems are built for the bulk, Mm. right? But when you have to get into West Louisville and work in fill in the blank for the community, 
and deal with the history of that community and deal with where people are now and what you have to do to help folks progress. There is no system that you can take off the shelf and make that happen. You have to have somebody who's willing to get in, get their hands dirty and work in a concerted effort over time. That's what CDFIs do. That's not what the banks do. Yeah. Well, and, and so and, and every if you system. don't have an industry doing that, a lot of your folks will never have the opportunity that they deserve. Well, we hear that a lot uh, today, I think, around um, the greater good or, um, you know, the system itself, efficiency, you know, you're able to help more people, right? And I think there's truth to that, right? So that's why we think about efficiency and, and scale. But we also have to acknowledge that every time we talk about efficiency, there are those that just don't fit, um, that need additional technical assistance, maybe didn't have the education or the, or the home environment to, to help support them in that way. So what do we do? We just say, well, so what, you know, good luck. But I think, I think there's right. this, this idea, this need for innovation to support the fringes of society. And what I love about CDFIs and the work that you do is you really put the person back at the center uh, and I think that's what I, when I kind of think about old, old school community banking, where it's like, there's a relationship, there is a person, there's something beyond just these, uh, this financial algor- algorithm that underwrites whether or not someone is worthy of a loan. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I love the, it's, I love the it's, creativity. It's funny. You, uh, your, your point is powerful because the truth is that's right. CDFIs are actually mirroring the old school notion of the system much better than the system is right now. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, and I, and I want to kind of end on, uh, cause I appreciate your time, but there, you have a quote that I, I personally resonated with and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about it because at, at the work that we do, we really, I think, try to prioritize, um, the, the personal experience of communities uh, and people And you said it's people's stories that will actually sustain the work. Uh, Storytelling, particularly about the journey of the people that you're trying to help, is the oxygen of the work. Could you maybe, for you, just kind of expand on that a little bit? Like, what does that mean to you? And how do you try to do that in the work that you do, this this storytelling and this this oxygen uh, that you talk about? You know, I'm reminded of a a young man I met who... um, um, I learned his story by sitting next to him and um, when we were celebrating a, what we call Workforce Plus Financial mm-hmm. Opportunity Center. And I, I said to him, I said, so how you doing? And he said, man, I'm doing great. And I wanna thank Lisk for the work uh, that you, you're, you're doing. And I said, well, tell me how, you know, how we impacted you. Uh, he said, he looked at me and he, practically teared up. He, he said, you, you changed my life. I mm. said, what do you mean? He, he said, I was in prison for seven years on a drug charge. Um, he said, I came out of prison and I found one of these financial opportunity centers. He said, now after working with my coach and getting financial literacy coaching and working on my housing, he said, now I have a American Welding Society certification. He goes, I, I'm now um, actually, um, I'm leading people who are welders. Mm. I'm a manager. And uh, I said, man, that's great. I said, you're making a, a, a living wage plus. He said, I am. He goes, but you know what's more important? 
and he paused and and I could I could feel him. He said, he said, I can now be a father. Mm. He said, I, I have a, a nine-year-old daughter. And he said, I, I'm now her father. He said, I wasn't her father before. That's powerful. I mean, that that's it, that's the story that I want people to internalize. There's opportunity. There, there are geniuses in every community. What we've got to work on is bringing opportunity to those geniuses so they can be the best they can be, so we as a country can be the best we can be. Yeah. And you, you won't get that through the number of loans, the, the risk rating on the loans, the, 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 the capital stack. You won't get that through that. But you will get it from hearing this guy's story, from feeling this guy's story, from listening to him tell this story. You walk away from that and you go, oh, yeah. Yeah. We we can, you know, we this can do is this. what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. We can, we do, can this. do this. Yeah. He can do this yeah. with our partnership. And that and that's the point. And so there's no place in the country that guys like that aren't present. We got to go find them and we got to we got to hold their hands and walk this journey with them. And that's great. That's that's what these stories, I think, can do. Uh, it can it can teach you that over and over and over and over again. I mean, even with me, you know, I looked at him and I, I was celebrating the fact that he was out of prison and that he had a job and he's earning a living. And he looked at me, he goes, no, man, that's not what's important. I'm a father. If you'd like to learn more about Maurice and his work, please go to their website, lisk.org or follow him on Twitter at Lisk Maurice. And if you are in the business of community lending and need a tool to more efficiently deploy capital that is transparent and accessible, check out our new product, LenderFit, at LenderFit.io. Again, if you've liked what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.